Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 147, The Final Shoe. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. And the Craftlet Knitty Holiday Travel Extravaganza Fall 2010. Join us for a tour of London, Bath, and Wales. Imagine sitting around with a bunch of bookish, crafty people in, in England, you know? looking at Jane Austen stuff. Come and join us. Go to craftlit.com and click on the holiday travel logo in the upper right-hand corner for more information or to make a reservation. Well, hi. Uh, you may be wondering what the final shoe is. The final shoe is that last night, when I thought I would be podcasting, my grandfather passed away. And I think I've mentioned... You know, it's so hard uh, because time time has passed over the last three and a half years of podcasting. About a year ago, my grandfather came to live with us in Tucson. Not with us physically, but around the corner from us in a facility for older people who have dementia. And this was great because I was able to see him. My kids were able to see him. We were able to surround him with uh, constant family and uh, and friends and you know, just try to make sure that the quality of life was as high as it could possibly be because just because he doesn't have dementia or just because he has dementia doesn't mean he shouldn't have a good life, you know? And he was still, you know, there were those moments as it is, I'm sure, with all dementia patients where you could kind of crack through and a piece of the person you once knew will come out and those moments are so precious and so wonderful. And I was blessed to have quite a few of those moments over the last year. But it became clear over the last few months that those times weren't happening anymore. And that he really wasn't able to string more than six words together at a time. And uh, he was doing a lot more hand wringing. And all of these things we've learned are signs that... Um, the spark of life is fading. And so last night, uh, after a, a struggle, my family decided that we would move him to hospice. Not because he was necessarily checking out, but because the struggle and hospital care simply just didn't seem to be care enough. I know, I know, many of you know what I'm talking about. So we moved him over to hospice and the whole process started a little bit before seven and uh, and the people from the hospice were just lovely and I'm sure those of you who have encountered hospice know what I'm talking about. They appear to be the only people who understand what it's like to be closing in on the end of life, you know, because their, their MO isn't to preserve life at any cost, regardless of how it makes the patient feel or the family. Their job is to, you know, evaluate the situation and based on the criteria and the data that is there in front of you, make a rational decision and work hard to make sure that the patient and the family are as comfortable and as cared for as is humanly possible. And this is exactly what we encountered. And my mother and my aunt and I were all together and uh, they transported my grandfather into a new room which looked like a bedroom it was beautiful and um, the the nurse and the tech and um, the assistants were all in there you know getting rid of the detritus from the hospital they they changed him from the horrible hospital gown into a, a what looked like honestly a t-shirt kind of like a trolley brown t-shirt. It was white and it had brown stripes across the front and it wasn't it wasn't printed stripes. They were actual, I, I know this will matter to you. It was fabric. It was um, like applique fabric stripes, beautifully done across the front. Um, you know, quality. It was just, they cared. And, um, and they removed all the IV detritus and 
propped up his arms and legs on pillows in a way that made me want to lie down and take a nap because we were all so tired. And, um, and uh, when they were done, um, the social worker said, you know, I think, I think the room's open if you want to go back in. And we went in and I had hold of one of my grandfather's hands and my aunt had hold of his elbow and arm which is um, kind of a, a really wonderful pulse point. It's a, it's a good place to hold on to someone when they're lying there and um, fading. And my mom was kind of uh, mopping his brow and, and brushing his hair back. And he was having a hard time breathing. But my grandfather always had a hard time breathing when he was sleeping because he had horrible sleep apnea. And uh, everybody just kind of thought it was the apnea. And my mom and my aunt started to talk about, um, you know, things that my grandfather had done and how he always sounded like this and how he was such a bear that he could just lie down anywhere and pass out and fall asleep. And, you know, if he's vertical, he was a perpetual motion machine. But if he was horizontal, he was, you know, asleep. And while they were talking, he stopped breathing. And, you know, when we walked in and we, we took hold of him and, and held on to him, we all said... We all said hi, and we all repeated our names so that he knew exactly who was there. And it really did as cliche as it sounds. I know that those of you who've been through this before know what I'm talking about. It was truly as though he just needed to be in a place that was comfortable, that felt like home, and where he was surrounded by his kids, and in my case, his grandchild. And once he knew that he was safe and that we were there, he could let go. And it was as peaceful a passing as you could possibly have. And, and what, you know, if we're lucky, that's how we go. Surrounded by family, sleeping it off, and just fade out. And um, he was 94. He had a good run. And... Um, to me, really, the only sad part is that I, I don't see a whole lot of people like him taking up the mantle and running with it. He worked for Hunter Douglas. Many of you may have Hunter Douglas blinds in your house. If you do, my grandfather helped build the machines that made your blinds. But he didn't just help build the machines that made your blinds. He was the last surviving person up until last night who knew how every one of those machines worked and who could fix them all. He worked his way up through the company. He was an engineer and I think he wound up being some kind of vice president type person towards the end uh, when he finally decided to retire. But this was a guy, I know I've talked about him before, who built a car when he was 11 and another car that's still on the road. He built it when he was 12. He was completely a MacGyver. He could fix a car with bailing wire and masking tape. Uh, my poor grandmother thought she would always have a new car being married to him because, because he loved cars so much and she didn't understand that more than, more than his love of cars, he loved making do and mending <laughs> in, uh, in support of Brenda Dane's uh, previous series on Cast On. Um, he was definitely a mend kind of person. And... Uh, and we're so disposable these days that the, the passing of someone who was truly in love with the idea of fixing things and improving things, as, as cockamamie as some of his ideas may have been, most of them were really good. Um, you know, it's the, it's the end of an era in some ways. And it's a shame because right now is when we could really use some of those thinkers. And I hope, I hope that, you know, like cream in the fresh milk, that the people who are like him will rise to the surface and they'll be able to compete on the world market and they'll show us how to retrofit things and tweak things and improve things and make stuff better and more efficient and, and find a way to make do. And mend, because um, because I know how valuable it was for me as a child to have someone like that as a role model. I don't know if he was a great father or not, but he sure was a great grandfather. And I treasured every minute I had with him. So, 
So that was the final shoe. Because, uh, as you know, a little over a year and a half ago, my husband's grandmother died. And that was, I believe, waiting for the shoe to drop. And, um, and now the grandparents are gone. The great-grandparents for my kids are gone, and the grandparents are gone for my husband and for me. And um, not that the grandparents we have for our kids aren't great, <laughs> because they are. But it's weird, you know, for you to be suddenly um, devoid of grandparentage yourself. So, passing of a torch. A what? Speaking of AWOT, I haven't been able to t update you on any Knitting Out Loud books right lately because I've been sidetracked by Jeeves. I've been listening to a P.G. Woodhouse book on uh, from Audible, and <laughs> if you haven't ever listened to a Jeeves book, I highly recommend it. It was um, wonderful in the same way that the Thin Man series is wonderful. So you may want to you may want to pick something like that up. It's um, it's a joy. It's a joy, and it certainly is uh, diverting. It takes your mind off of things, which we needed this week. This week was tough. I have, uh, in the way of crafts, I have a couple of things to alert you to. One is, on the show notes, you will see a link to a Chillingworth owl. I kid you not. Rita, Rita sent me a link. I hadn't seen it. Spectacular. Chillingworth the Owl. Somebody made a really dark and dour-looking owl out of denim. <laughs> it's wonderful. The link is on the show notes. And um, as, as before, there are still only a few seats left for the Craftlet trip. Don't forget, it's not just me. It's me. It's Amy Singer. And we will hunt down Brenda Dane while we are in Wales. You'll meet her. And I hope... Tanya as well. I I personally really hope to see Tanya as well because Tanya and I had a great time on Sea Socks together, and um, and I've missed their company. It's hard when you when you meet someone who you just click with, and then you find that you're five thousand miles away from each other all the time. It gets to be a little draining. So make sure you go to craftlet.com and click on that holiday travel link and find out about making a reservation and then make one. And, you know, even if you aren't sure, make the reservation. There is no penalty for being hopeful in my world. We have a new October incentive. We have for you, I have it in my hot little hands. In fact, I can make it make noise for you. That is the sound of a brand new novel written by a Craftlet listener. Amy S. Foster's novel, which I've mentioned before, When Autumn Leaves, Amy in her gorgeous benevolence, gorgeous, I say, because when you see the picture of her on the back cover, you're going to say, dang, how can I look like that? She has signed two copies of her new novel. And for October, I am incentivizing one of them. And for November, I will incentivize the other. It's, uh, I finally did finish it. I was, uh, I've been feeling lousy, as you know, with the migraine. It's finally starting to fade, but I'm still very, very tired. And, um, and the last couple of days uh, of last week, I, I really did just plop myself in bed and say, okay, I'm done. And I sat there with my book and I finished it. And it's a lovely tale. It's a lovely tale. It's a hopeful tale. It's a, it's a positive, warm tale. And it's very interesting because you may think that it hasn't gotten under your skin until you start to notice that you're thinking about the characters and when you're going to see them because they're that real and and wonderful and um and i hope you get a chance to read it even if you don't win it i hope you do go out and purchase yourself a copy supporting our craftlet family which is extending itself more and more these days so october incentive when autumn leaves by amy s foster i think there's another incentive coming but it won't be until next week i can't confirm anything yet don't forget the 2009 Craftlet Challenge. This is the second to the last week that you can enter. Uh, today, for those of you not listening in completely real time, today is October 9th, 2009. You have at least one more week to get your challenge items in. Go to the craftlet.com page and click on the 2009 challenge link in the upper bar of the show notes, and you will see... Uh, the, in, all the instructions that you may need. There is, as far as I can tell, no reason why this can't be accomplished over the next week. Uh, you just have to make sure that you're using red yarn 
or designed with at least red yarn in mind. And you must somehow incorporate the letter or the letter A uh, to be specific or an interpretation thereof in your design somehow. And, um, and then there's some pattern technicalities that you should read about on the show notes. But we're, we're getting very close to the end. So email any of your entries to heather at craftlit.com and we will get you going for, for the final judging. It's very exciting. Very exciting. And uh, the last thing I wanted to let you know about is I am in the process of building an iPhone application. One of the things that I will need to do for this iPhone application is, maybe not with every episode, but certainly every month, I need to have some extra PDF-y type of thing that I can upload with the show notes. And what I was thinking was this. We are a crafty bunch, and we are multi-crafty. And I see no reason why those of you who aren't exactly designers yet, you know, published designers yet, but who are coming up with these amazingly creative crafty things that you're putting into the 2009 challenge, I see no reason why you shouldn't be able to publish your pattern, you know, one of your early ones, one of the ones that, that you, you know, you're kind of getting your feet wet, publish it on the iPhone app. And then everybody who well, everybody who has an iPhone who has the Craftlit app will be able to download a copy of your pattern. You can, on the PDF, link to your blog, to your Etsy store, to your Ravelry page, to whatever. I think as long as it's not, you know, dirty, uh, you can link to whatever you want. And it would be a great way for us to... Well, honestly, I keep talking about the Craftlet family being so large and broad. I think this would kind of demonstrate just how large and broad we are. If you could see where everybody's from, I mean, we have people on the Craftlet trip coming from all over the world. It is stupendous. It is so exciting. And this, I think, would be just, you know, one more way to kind of reach out and show that we're, <laughs> that we're all in this together, that, you know, we stretch everywhere and it would be a lovely opportunity for you kind of risk-free to get your name out there and let people see the fabulous things that you do and especially if you have an etsy store it would you know drive some traffic to you it's going to take about another two weeks probably around the time that we start flatland before the iphone app is up and ready uh, i will be making sure that uh, the first PDF thing will, will be something that, that I've done so that um, so we can get it up and running. But if you have ideas or if you have submissions that you'd like to make, please email them to me at uh, heather at craftlit.com and we'll get a conversation going and figure out what we can do because I'm really quite excited about this whole thing. This all came about because of Libsyn, libsyn.com, where the podcast is hosted. They, they keep my files in the interwebs, in the tubes in the sky for us. And, um, and we, we pay them to do that. That's where your donations go, is, is to pay them for that storage space. Well, as a way of giving back, they are building the iPhone app for me. It will not be a free app. I, I can't remember if they said like the first week will be free or I can't remember. But I know the app will not be free, which kind of makes me cringe because of course Craftlet itself is free and I don't like charging. You know, if you have money and you want to donate, that's totally up to you. But I'm always woodgy because I'm a lousy businesswoman is what it comes down to. <sighs> so this is making me a little uncomfortable on the one hand. But it's also making me very excited on the other hand, because I feel like it's a real platform for you as well as for me. And I, I really want it to become that thing. So I'm going to stop talking about it now and go on with the really important stuff, which is chapter 23, because this really is the moment. This is it. This is the moment you've been waiting for. This is, this is the final scaffold scene, for real. And before I launch into a description, because my description pre-chapter is going to be very brief, my discussion post-chapter is where we're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty, I got an email from a listener named Kate. And um, she wound up, <laughs> wound up listening to 
the last few chapters, she was back on 17 and 18, chapters 17 and 18, she was listening with her husband. And so, you know, you kind of have to think back in time, about 10 chapters. So that puts us just past the previous scaffold scene. She said some interesting conclusions and thoughts we came up with. First, there is a role reversal between Hester and Dimsdale from the stereotypical Victorian or chivalric fainting heroine and strong hero. Dimsdale is the is the one literally fainting and fading away from guilt, while Hester is doing the honorable thing and getting on with life while protecting those she loves and those to whom she has a duty. She is the one who has accepted dishonor to save the name of a beloved one. Um, Kate's husband seemed to think that there was a particularly American, perhaps Southern ethic, whereby it was Dimsdale's honorable position to come forward and accept public responsibility for the slin slash pearl, which would then have allowed everyone to move on. Now, Kate's husband is not born in America, so this was an interesting insight, I thought. His refusal to do so has stalled everyone, particularly Hester and Pearl, of course, but also the rest of the community. This comes into play in today's chapter. I think there's an element of that from the other places and times, but, you know, you do, you do have to take into the context. Kate pointed out that Chillingworth hasn't taken the expected position after finding out what has happened either. He could have very easily publicly proclaimed himself a wronged husband, either to take back a chastened Hester and her child, or to repudiate and leave them. I love that word, repudiate. Isn't that great? It's just a great word. Either would, again, have allowed everyone concerned to move on. Instead, he has come secretly to keep his hold over Hester without clarifying things publicly. We could have had sympathy for him either way, but instead he's become the wicked character to Dimsdale's weak one. Chillingworth proclaiming himself Master Prynne publicly, or even just letting Hester know he wouldn't, might have let her leave and start a new life without public shame in a new place, either as Dimsdale's wife or as a quote-unquote widow. His choice, though, has forced Hester to stay far longer than she might have done in hope of Dimsdale finding some gumption. Of course, she might not have chosen that path anyhow, but between the two men, she has been forced into a passivity somewhat at odds with the force of her character for seven years. I think Kate and her husband really foresaw, um, well, a lot of what you're going to see come to fruition today, because today is kind of the, um, well, it's, you know, it's the moment of reckoning for, for all that that's worth, and it is... I, I, I kind of feel for us, it is the payback for having to slog through some of the more difficult chapters. Although the last, I think the last third of the book is just great. It's, you know, the torment that these people go through is just very, 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 very painful. And I know <laughs> I've been reading, I've been reading blog posts where Craftlet is mentioned. And I know that there are some listeners who think that I've been way too soft on Dimsdale. And I think that's probably true. And I think it probably has something to do with the fact that my grandfather was sick because he wasn't the easiest person in the world either. But, you know, when when things are really going badly for people, it's it's hard to, you know, when you're the one in the thick of it, it's it's hard to judge. I had friends in New York and we'd always used to say, don't you judge me because there was uh, grace under fire. And she constantly said, don't you judge me. And so we kind of took that on as our mantle because, you know, nobody's perfect. And we, we, certainly, <laughs> we certainly weren't. But I, I also think that, you know, I, it's hard to know what Dimsdale himself, if he was freed from the bonds that tied him to this community, the bonds of, of being a, a minister and very respected. And of course, you know, your ego gets tied up in being respected and that clouds your judgment because you start to think, well, what are people going to think of me? And, you know, it's such a disservice to everyone. If I suddenly come out and I'm, I'm not a good person, then they'll stop trying to be good people. And, you know, where does his mission as a, a priest to these people end? And where does his own humanity begin? I mean, these are fairly difficult questions to, to deal with. But it's hard to know if you extracted him from this society, what, what would he have wanted? You know, would he have beaten himself so profoundly these last seven years if he wasn't living within this community? 
I mean, he could have still been a Puritan and still have followed a fairly Calvinist theology of his own. But, you know, you can't help but wonder if the dude had been in Rhode Island, would he have whacked himself over the head with this as much as he did? Or would he and Hester have found some way to, to work through it? And, and then, of course, there's the other piece, which is Chillingworth. And it is absolutely impossible for us to know what Dimsdale was like before all this happened. Our first image of him is on the balcony looking over the scaffold, and he's very weak. And we know that. It's the, oh, strength and beauty of a woman's heart, she will not speak. And he's very passive, and he, he tries to exhort to Hester to get her to change her mind and to speak, but of course he doesn't really want her to. But then, of course, he probably does want her to because then it'll be out in the open and then he won't have to be the one who confesses it. It's very hard to know, though, because for the last nine months, he's been knowing this was coming. And who knows what that nine months has done to this man? It's, you know, there are life-changing events and finding out that Hester was pregnant had to have been one of them. So it's, 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 hard to know. it's hard to know if Dimsdale really did believe at some point that he could outrun his sin, or if he really didn't know because he had up until now led really quite a very good life, if he just simply didn't know how to deal with sin that was in himself, or if he was conflicted because it didn't feel like sin. You know, that, that puts it in a whole different light, because of course they didn't know Chillingworth or Master Prin, they didn't know he was alive. He'd been missing for two years. Hester's hot. Dimsdale must have been hot, right? And and they fell in love. You know, hotness aside, if you're spending time with someone and you find that you love who they are inside, it would be very difficult, not under circumstances like that, to take it to the next level. Why Hester couldn't be granted a divorce after two years of a missing husband, I don't know. And I'm sure it's tied up in, in uh, Puritan doctrine and, and their understanding of how to go about getting a divorce if you were allowed to at all, which I kind of doubt. But, um, but gosh, it's, wow, hard, hard. So yeah, I probably am too easy on Dimsdale. But yeah, at least I have some reasons for it. And I know somebody's going to write in with an excellent rebuttal to everything I just said, and I'm looking forward to reading it on the air because, as I said, I think a lot of how I'm feeling is kind of colored by what what my life has been like lately. Um, th- there was another comment, which I think is, is very well taken, which is that I haven't talked a whole lot about how weird Hester is with Pearl. And, and some of it, I think, is... Um, my husband once said something very wise about parents, which is parents, as messed up as they can be, and as badly as they may parent, parents do the best they can with what they've got. And sometimes what you have to draw on is very little. We, Even the best parents have had those days when they are exhausted and they haven't slept and they're about to lose their job and they are out of patience and what they have left to deal with is very little. And there's going to be a kid that gets yelled at on that day. It's it's just going to happen. And you hope that, you know, when reason prevails and things get better, that the parent will sit down and explain to the kid, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have yelled, I know that, that was the wrong thing to do, and so I'm doing the right thing now and I'm apologizing, and I'll try to be better. And, you know, you model for your kid how you'd like them to behave. Not all parents can do that, sadly. Not everybody has the same tools or the same gifts. And with very rare exception, and I have to actually say that there are exceptions, and I've seen them, most parents want their kids' lives to be better than their lives were. Not that their life is bad, but that, you, you know, you want, you want the best you can get for your kid. Well, Hester's in a really weird position with that because she's wearing this thing, and if she explains what this thing is to a very young child, it's like having that discussion, the where do babies come from discussion, and you think the kid wants the anatomy physiology, and the kid really just wants to know 
did you buy it at a store or did it come out of a belly like that woman who's got a big belly over there? You know, you can, you can take it too far. And Hester has definitely erred on the side of the pulling back and not explaining anything. And has those moments where she'll say things to, to Pearl, like, you know, if you don't stop it, I'm going to lock you in a dark closet. Not to say that we haven't all felt like that at some point or another, but I think you can really see that, that Hester's at the end of her rope at moments like that with trying to figure out how to explain this to a small girl when she has absolutely no counsel. There is no one in town who is talking to this woman or helping her through. She has no support group. She has no network. And she is obsessed with and kind of possessed by the guilt associated with the Scarlet Letter. It would be very difficult to explain to your child of any age, like until they're 40, what happened and what this meant and what this has meant to you. And I think what happened because of it, and I think this is really insightful on Hawthorne's part, is it's it's made Hester be a very odd mother in some ways. There are some things that she does that none of us would ever do or say, but she's she's been forced into such a backwards position. I mean, there's always that moment in a child's life where they realize that their mother and their father aren't perfect. And for some children, that's an enormous blow. And they suddenly feel like they can't trust their parents anymore. And it's horrifying. And for some children, and I was lucky to be among them, my parents never claimed to be perfect. And we had a lot of family discussions and things were always on the table if you needed to talk about them. And, and so when, I guess at some point I must have discovered that my parents weren't perfect, but I don't remember when that was because it was not a big deal. Um, I think I kind of always knew that your job as an adult was to try. You try to be the best whatever it is that you're going to try and be. And some days you manage and some days not so much. But Pearl's going to have a weirder time with that. And Hester's going to have a harder time admitting where she is on that scale of perfection. And I don't think there's any way to escape that because the poor woman is so isolated. So today, I'm going to play the, the chapter and I'm just going to let you listen because I don't think that there's much that I need to actually explain for you or tell you to listen for um i i today's chapter really just speaks for itself it's a beautiful chapter and it's it is in many ways a heartbreaking chapter it's not the end of tale of two cities but it has its own moments and um and then i'll come back in at the end and we'll talk some more so without any further yammering in your ears i will give you chapter 23 the penultimate chapter of the scarlet letter by nathaniel hawthorne the Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne Chapter 23 The Revelation of the Scarlet Letter The eloquent voice on which the souls of the listening audience had been borne aloft as on the swelling waves of the sea at length came to a pause. There was a momentary silence, profound as what should follow the utterance of oracles. There ensued a murmur and half-hushed tumult, as if the auditors, released from the high spell that had transported them into the region of another's mind, were returning into themselves, with all their awe and wonder still heavy on them. In a moment more, the crowd began to gush forth from the doors of the church. Now that there was an end, they needed more breath, more fit to support the gross and earthly life into which they relapsed, than that atmosphere which the preacher had converted into words of flame and had burdened with the rich fragrance of his thought. In the open air, their rapture broke into speech. The street and the marketplace absolutely babbled from side to side with applauses of the minister. His hearers could not rest until they had told one another of what each knew better than he could tell or hear. According to their united testimony, never had man spoken in so wise, so high, and so holy a spirit as he that spake this day nor had inspiration ever breathed through mortal lips more evidently than it did through his. Its influence could be seen, as it were, descending upon him, and possessing him, and continually lifting him out of the written discourse that lay before him, 
and filling him with ideas that must have been as marvelous to himself as to his audience. His subject, it appeared, had been the relation between the deity and the communities of mankind, with a special reference to the New England which they were here planting in the wilderness. And as he drew towards the close, a spirit as of prophecy had come upon him, constraining him to its purpose as mightily as the old prophets of Israel were constrained, only with this difference, that whereas the Jewish seers had denounced judgments and ruin on their country, it was his mission to foretell a high and glorious destiny for the newly gathered people of the Lord. But throughout it all, and through the whole discourse, there had been a certain deep, sad undertone of pathos, which could not be interpreted otherwise than as the natural regret of one soon to pass away. Yes, their minister whom they so loved, and who so loved them all, that he could not depart heavenward without a sigh, had the foreboding of untimely death upon him, and would soon leave them in their tears. This idea of his transitory stay on earth gave the last emphasis to the effect which the preacher had produced. It was as if an angel, in his passage to the skies, had shaken his bright wings over the people for an instant, at once a shadow and a splendor, and had shed down a shower of golden truths upon them. Thus there had come to the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale, as to most men in their various spheres, though seldom recognized until they see it far behind them, an epoch of life more brilliant and full of triumph than any previous one or than any which could hereafter be. He stood at this moment on the very proudest eminence of superiority to which the gifts of intellect, rich lore, prevailing eloquence, and a reputation of whitest sanctity could exalt a clergyman in New England's earliest days, when the professional character was of itself a lofty pedestal. Such was the position which the minister occupied as he bowed his head forward on the cushions of the pulpit at the close of his election sermon. Meanwhile, Hester Prynne was standing beside the scaffold of the pillory, with the scarlet letter still burning on her breast. Now was heard again the clamor of the music, and the measured tramp of the military escort issuing from the church door. The procession was to be marshaled thence to the town hall, where a solemn banquet would complete the ceremonies of the day. Once more, therefore, the train of venerable and majestic fathers were seen moving through a broad pathway of the people who drew back reverently on either side, as the governor and magistrates, the old and wise men, the holy ministers, and all that were eminent and renowned advanced into the midst of them. When they were fairly in the marketplace, their presence was greeted by a shout. This, though doubtless it might acquire additional force and volume from the childlike loyalty which the age awarded to its rulers, was felt to be an irrepressible outburst of enthusiasm kindled in the auditors by that high strain of eloquence which was yet reverberating in their ears. Each felt the impulse in himself, and in the same breath caught it from his neighbor. Within the church it had hardly been kept down. Beneath the sky it peeled upward to the zenith. There were human beings enough, and enough of highly wrought and symphonious feeling, to produce that more impressive sound than the organ tones of the blast or the thunder or the roar of the sea even that mighty swell of many voices, blended into one great voice by the universal impulse which makes likewise one vast heart out of the many. Never from the soil of New England had gone up such a shout. Never on New England soil had stood the man so honored by his mortal brethren as the preacher. How fared it with him, then? Were there not the brilliant particles of a halo in the air about his head? So etherealized by spirit as he was, and so apotheosized by worshipping admirers, did his footsteps in the procession really tread upon the dust of earth. As the ranks of military men and civil fathers moved onward, all the eyes were turned toward the point where the minister was seen to approach among them. The shout died into a murmur as one portion of the crowd after another obtained a glimpse of him. How feeble and pale he looked amid all his triumph. The energy, or say rather the inspiration, which had held him up until he should have delivered the sacred message that had brought its own strength along with it from heaven, was withdrawn now that it had, it had so faithfully performed its office. The glow which they had just before beheld burning on his cheek was extinguished, like a flame that sinks down hopelessly among the late decaying embers. 
It seemed hardly the face of a man alive, with such a death-like hue. It was hardly a man with life in him, that tottered on his path so nervously, yet tottered and did not fall. One of his clerical brethren, it was the venerable John Wilson, observing the state in which Mr. Dimsdale was left by the retiring wave of intellect and sensibility, stepped forward hastily to offer his support. The minister tremulously but decidedly repelled the old man's arm. He still walked onward, if that movement could be so described, which rather resembled the wavering effort of an infant with its mother's arms in view, outstretched to tempt him forward. And now, almost imperceptible as were the latter steps of his progress, he had come opposite the well-remembered and weather-darkened scaffold, where long since, with all that dreary lapse of time between, Hester Prynne had encountered the world's ignominious stare. There stood Hester, holding little Pearl by the hand, and there was the scarlet letter on her breast. The minister here made a pause, although the music still played the stately and rejoicing march to which the procession moved. It summoned him onward, inward to the festival, but here he made a pause. Bellingham, for the last few moments, had kept an anxious eye upon him. He now left his own place in the procession and advanced to give assistance, judging from Mr. Dimsdale's aspect that he must otherwise inevitably fall. But there was something in the latter's expression that warned back the magistrate, although a man not readily obeying the vague intimations that pass from one spirit to another. The crowd, meanwhile, looked on with awe and wonder. This earthly faintness was, in their view, only another phase of the minister's celestial strength, nor would it have seemed a miracle too high to be wrought for one so holy had he ascended before their eyes, waxing dimmer and brighter and fading at last into the light of heaven. He turned towards the scaffold and stretched forth his arms. Hester, said he, come hither, come, my little pearl. It was a ghastly look with which he regarded them, but there was something at once tender and strangely triumphant in it. The child, with the bird-like motion which was one of her characteristics, flew to him and clasped her arms about his knees. Hester Prynne, slowly, as if impelled by inevitable fate, and against her strongest will, likewise drew near, but paused before she reached him. At this instant, old Roger Chillingworth thrust himself through the crowd. Or perhaps, so dark, disturbed, and evil was his look, he rose up out of some nether region to snatch back his victim from what he sought to do. Be that as it might, the old man rushed forward and caught the minister by the arm. "'Madman, hold! What is your purpose?' whispered he. "'Wave back that woman. Cast off this child. All shall be well. Do not blacken your fame and perish in dishonor. I can yet save you. Would you bring infamy on your sacred profession?' "'Ha, tempter, methinks thou art too late,' answered the minister, encountering his eye fearfully but firmly. "'Thy power is not what it was.' With God's help, I shall escape thee now. He again extended his hand to the woman of the scarlet letter. Hester Prynne, cried he with a piercing earnestness, in the name of him so terrible and so merciful, who gives me grace at this last moment to do what, for my own heavy sin and miserable agony, I withheld myself from doing seven years ago. Come hither now and twine thy strength about me. Thy strength, Hester, but let it be guided by the will which God hath granted me. This wretched and wronged old man is opposing it with all his might, with all his own might and the fiend's. Come, Hester, come, support me up yonder scaffold. The crowd was in a tumult. The men of rank and dignity, who stood more immediately around the clergyman, were so taken by surprise and so perplexed as to the purport of what they saw unable to receive the explanation which most readily presented itself, or to imagine any other, that they remained silent and inactive spectators of the judgment which Providence seemed about to work. They beheld the minister, leaning on Hester's shoulder, and supported by her arm around him, approach the scaffold and ascend its steps. While still the little hand of the sin-born child was clasped in his, old Roger Chillingworth followed, as one intimately connected with the drama of guilt and sorrow in which they had all been actors, and well entitled, therefore, to be present at its closing scene. 
Hadst thou sought the whole earth over, he said, looking darkly at the clergyman. There was no one place so secret, no high place or lowly place, where thou couldst have escaped me, save on this very scaffold. Thanks be to him who hath led me hither, answered the minister. Yet he trembled, and turned to Hester with an expression of doubt and anxiety in his eyes, not the less evidently betrayed that there was a feeble smile upon his lips. Is not this better, murmured he, than what we dreamed of in the forest? I know not, I know not, she hurriedly replied. Better? Yea, so we may both die, and little Pearl die with us. For the end, Pearl, be it as God shall order, said the minister, and God is merciful. Let me now do the will which he hath made plain before my sight. For Hester, I am a dying man, so let me make haste to take my shame upon me. Partly supported by Hester Prynne, and holding one hand of little pearls, the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale turned to the dignified and venerable rulers, to the holy ministers who were his brethren, to the people whose great heart was thoroughly appalled, yet overflowing with tearful sympathy, as knowing that some deep life matter, which, if full of sin, was full of anguish and repentance likewise, was now to be laid open to them. The sun, but a little past its meridian, shone down upon the clergyman, and gave a distinctness to his figure, as he stood out from all the earth, to put in his plea of guilty at the bar of eternal justice. "'People of New England,' cried he, were the voice that rose over them, high, solemn, and majestic, yet had always a tremor through it, and sometimes a shriek, struggling up out of a fathomless depth of remorse and woe. "'Ye that have loved me, ye that have deemed me holy,' Behold me here, the one sinner of the world. At last, at last, I stand upon the spot where, seven years since I should have stood, here with this woman, whose arm, more than the little strength wherewith I have crept hitherward, sustains me at this dreadful moment from groveling down upon my face. Lo, the scarlet letter which Hester wears. Ye have all shuddered at it. Wherever her walk hath been, Wherever so miserably burdened she may have hoped to find repose, it has cast a lurid gleam of awe and horrible repugnance round about her. But there stood one in the midst of you, at whose brand of sin and infamy ye have not shuddered. It seemed at this point as if the minister must leave the remainder of his secret undisclosed. But he fought back the bodily weakness, and still more the faintness of heart that was striving for the mastery with him. He threw off all assistance and stepped passionately forward a pace before the woman and the child. It was on him, he continued, with a kind of fierceness. So determined was he to speak out the whole. God's eye beheld it. The angels were forever pointing at it. The devil knew it well and fretted it constantly with the touch of his burning finger. But he hid it cunningly from men and walked among you with the mien of a spirit, mournful because so pure in a sinful world and sad because he missed his heavenly kindred. Now at the death hour he stands up before you. He bids you look again at Hester's scarlet letter. He tells you that with all its mysterious horror, it is but the shadow of what he bears on his own breast, and that even this, his own red stigma, is no more than the type of what has seared his inmost heart. Stand any here that question God's judgment on a sinner. Behold, behold a dreadful witness of it. With a convulsive motion, he tore away the ministerial band from before his breast. It was revealed. But it were irreverent to describe that revelation. For an instant, the gaze of the horror-stricken multitude was concentrated on the ghastly miracle. While the minister stood, with a flush of triumph in his face, as one who, in the crisis of acutest pain, had won a victory. Then down he sank upon the scaffold. Hester partly raised him and supported his head against her bosom. Old Roger Chillingworth knelt down beside him with a blank, dull countenance, out of which the life seemed to have departed. Thou hast escaped me, he repeated more than once. Thou hast escaped me. May God forgive thee, said the minister. Thou too hast deeply sinned. He withdrew his dying eyes from the old man and fixed them on the woman and the child. My little pearl, said he, feebly, and there was a sweet and gentle smile over his face, as of a spirit sinking into deep repose. 
Nay, now that the burden was removed, it seemed almost as if he would be sportive with the child. Dear little Pearl, wilt thou kiss me now? Thou wouldst not yonder in the forest, but now thou wilt? Pearl kissed his lips. A spell was broken. The great scene of grief in which the wild infant bore a part had developed all her sympathies, and as her tears fell upon her father's cheek, they were the pledge that she would grow up amid human joy and sorrow, nor forever do battle with the world, but be a woman in it. Towards her mother, too, Pearl's errand as a messenger of anguish was fulfilled. Hester, said the clergyman, farewell. Shall we not meet again, whispered she, bending her face down close to his. Shall we not spend our immortal life together? Surely, surely, we have ransomed one another with all this woe. Thou lookest far into eternity with those bright dying eyes. Then tell me what thou seest. Hush, Hester, hush, said he, with tremulous solemnity. The law we broke, the sin here awfully revealed. Let these alone be in thy thoughts. I fear, I fear. It may be that when we forgot our God, when we violated our reverence each for the other's soul, it was thenceforth vain to hope that we could meet hereafter in an everlasting and pure reunion. God knows, and he is merciful. He hath proved his mercy most of all in my afflictions. By giving me this burning torture to bear upon my breast, by sending yonder dark and terrible old man to keep the torture always at red heat, by bringing me hither to die this death of triumphant ignominy before the people, had either of these agonies been wanting, I had been lost forever. Praised be his name, his will be done. Farewell. That final word came forth with the minister's expiring breath. The multitude, silent till then, broke out in a strange deep voice of awe and wonder, which could not as yet find utterance, save in this murmur that rolled so heavily after the departed spirit. End of chapter 23. So there it is, your final scaffold scene. Hawthorne structured this just so beautifully with, you know, starting with the scaffold and then right smack in the middle, you get your second scaffold where Dimsdale won't claim Hester and Pearl as his own. And then you get the final one. And, uh, and of course, this is, this is the sad one. But, um, but I think, well, I think a couple things. One is, I think it's kind of interesting that in the first scaffold scene, everything is presided over by the elders. You have the grown-ups up on the, the, above the platform, you know, above the scaffold on the balcony looking down, being very stern grown-ups. And then in the middle, it's like, you know, the kids are out after dark and they don't know really what to do. And they're out there and they're confused. And then in this one, you don't need the elders anymore because the kids have grown up. And Dimsdale is finally taking responsibility. Um, too bad, so sad, too late as it may be, but taking responsibility nonetheless. And instead of blaming Chillingworth, he seems to, on some level, kind of see Chillingworth as divine retribution for what he's done. That that Chillingworth showed up and what Chillingworth did was the right thing because Dimsdale deserved to have been punished for running away from his sin or thinking that he could run away from his sin as though God didn't see it. And um, and of course, that was really kind of the, the nasty knife twist that Dimsdale perpetrated up there on the scaffold was was in, in blessing Chillingworth. And, um, and boy, that had to that had to stick in Chillingworth's craw a what? Um, that that would have been uh, a wee bit hard to take were, were I the man uh, named Chillingworth. And of course, you know, on some level, Chillingworth loses because he's wrong. He was wrong to have done that. He, uh, he by playing God, you know, by taking on the position of being the divine retributor. <laughs> Is there a word for that? The one who is meeting out divine retribution. Um, he, he took on a mantle that really wasn't his. And as we talked about before, before the chapter started, there were so many other ways that this could have been dealt with that would have been um, more equitable 
maybe. But of course, you know, Hawthorne had a couple different things going here. He wasn't just trying to tell us a story, um, this kind of thwarted love story. He was also trying to make some commentary on what he saw as the weaknesses um, that were there within the Puritan society. And of course, he was fairly judgmental because he bore some ill will towards his great, 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 great grandfather, who would have been the guy who hung Mistress Hibbins. So Hawthorne had an axe to grind, there is no question, but he also did some research and, and he, he knew some of what he spoke, at least. And um, and what, what you see next week in chapter 24, which is very much the denouement of, of this whole story, um, not so much a resolution as it is the the untying of the knots, not unraveling, but the untying that all these problems and dramas and traumas have been knotted together throughout the text of this book. And now finally we get that release. Everything kind of falls back into stasis and just kind of relaxes again and things go on. And so that's that's really next week's chapter. It's um it's still sad but it's not as overwhelming as, as this chapter was. And, um, and I think that's really pretty much everything I wanted to say. I know, I know because at the end of each book, I wind up getting lots of emails. So next week's chapter is very brief. If you feel like contributing something or you think I missed something, please send a letter, heather at craftlit.com and, um, and tell me if it's okay if I read it on the air. And I will because um, it certainly has become clear over the last three and a half years that you guys are really smart people. Fabulous, fabulous, wonderful people, but also really, really smart people. And it's always a joy to get email from you saying, did you ever think of this? Or have you missed this? Or I thought you were wrong on this. It's good. It's hard to have the one-sided conversation sometimes. And the ends of books, is it's always the hardest part where... I can't just sit down with you over a pint and say, wow, wasn't that awesome? And have you talk back to me in real time. So we'll do it virtually and that will just have to do. Don't forget, please, 2009 Craftlet Challenge. You have one more week. And uh, go to craftlet.com. Click on the holiday travel link in the upper right-hand corner, even if you think there is a small chance that you might be able to join us on the trip. At least go find out what's what. And uh, if you have any questions, you can contact Diane. Her information is on that website as well. And our October incentive, When Autumn Leaves, by our listener, Amy S. Foster. Actual novel. Very exciting. And, um, and that's a signed copy. A signed copy first edition paperback with, you know, the really cool paperback where when you open it, it's still the glossy paper on the inside because you get to read all the reviews and everything. It's that paperback. It's very, very nice. So lots of exciting things happening. Uh, after we're done with Scarlet Letter, we will start Flatland, which my father is, in fact, recording for you. He's very excited about that, as am I. And for all of those of you who are my science and math listeners who have put up with literature <laughs> and, and metaphor and symbol and, you know, heartbreak all this time, you are now going to have mathematical metaphor and symbol coming your way and uh, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that it will be a lot of fun and with that I think I am going to leave you it is late and I am tired and and I I need to go take a break so I'm gonna go knit I think I'm gonna go knit Ooh, what am I gonna knit maybe I could knit on a sock or I could knit on a baby bobby bear that I'm starting for a friend or I could work on my sister's wedding shawl out of guilt, which kind of goes along with the chapter. <laughs> Maybe I'll work on the wedding shawl. <sighs> I have a bunch of things to do, but I know you do as well. So I will leave you and have a great week. I will talk to you again very soon, and I hope you have a good one. Take care. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found 
at craftlit.com, or you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one off.